Thanks, guys. What's up, Crossroads? I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And I don't know if you know it or not, but today marks the exact halfway point in our series on the Minor Prophets. You guys liking it? Yeah, pretty uplifting stuff. See some chuckles there, but it is uplifting too. It has been heavy, but I hope you guys see, even through this series, that even really weighty, difficult things like the vengeance of God can still be good news for us today. Well, today we are at the halfway point. It's halftime. And what do you do at halftime? You head back to the locker room, right? You draw up some new plays. You take a little break. Not me, I guess. I just kind of head back to the kitchen and draw up some new nachos. But we're going to do that. Not the nachos. I'm sorry if you got excited for a second there. We're going to take a little pause from the Minor Prophets. And you guys may have seen this uh, on Facebook. You guys may have seen it sitting on your chair. We are going to be stepping into the I Am statements of John. Really, the I Am statements of Jesus recorded in John's Gospel. And that's really intentional. This is an intentional move kind of heading into Good Friday and Easter. We're doing several things. One, we're changing up the series. Two, just kind of like as a little appetizer, I don't want to spoil it too much, but we're going to have a couple extra services, things like the Good Friday service. If you guys have never been to a Good Friday service, please, please, please come out. They're an incredible time of reflection and contemplation and praise, thinking about the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus gave on our behalf. We're also going to um, throw something else out there that if you've been at Crossroads for a long time will be familiar. If you're newer, please take part and experience it. You may have done it elsewhere, but we're going to, I think, bring back a little 24-7 prayer. And so that's going to be a time where as a body we have prayer slots and we have opportunities for you to take a time to where around the clock we as a body are collectively just crying out to God. And so get excited. There's a lot of fun stuff coming up in the future, but that's then, this is today, and today we kick off the I am statements. And let me just give you just a little note on these I am statements and why they're so important. Let me give you kind of two reasons why these are just crucial for us to study. One, Jesus is declaring his divinity. I don't think that we always recognize that, but this is exactly what he's doing. It kind of goes back. It, uh, it's to Moses when he's getting ready to go back to Egypt and he's talking to God in the burning bush and he just kind of asks him like, Lord, who shall I tell them is sending me? And God just says, tell them that I am that I am is the one who's sending you. And I love that. Just the refusal to be confined to even a name. God's just saying, I'm bigger than that. He gives us all kinds of names later, all kinds of pictures of who he is. He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He's El Roy, the God who sees me. He's Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. But if you really want to know who God is, he is who he is. You can't define him down and try to confine him. It's not just at the burning bush, though, that we see the I am statements. All throughout Isaiah, you see God constantly saying, the false gods are this, but I am this other thing entirely. Isaiah 46, let me give you one example, says this, even to your old age in your gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. So when Jesus steps on the scene and he begins to throw out these I am declarations, he is declaring that he's God. 
fact, I want to take you back a little bit. The reason why this is important, even 15, 20 years ago, I was in college. Um, I'm looking out, and actually, there's a guy who knows me from college. I had hair. Oli, tell him I had hair, please. So you guys can picture me. I was the same height. I had glorious hair. I don't know why you guys are laughing. This is a true story. I was 40 pounds lighter, though, than I am today. I was so scrawny. I could like hula hoop with a necklace, right? <laughs> and I had this guy who came into my dorm room. And so picture Brandon sitting there, and he's talking with this guy. And this guy, um, we start talking about the Lord. And I'm telling him about Christ. And he said, yeah, but you've got it wrong. He said, Jesus was a great teacher. I agree with you. But he, he never claimed to be God. It was later, centuries later, that people began to do that. How would you answer him? Maybe I should do this earlier in the service. We've already kind of told it. I took him to the I am statements of John, right? I took him to John 8, verse 58, where Jesus just says, before Abraham was even born, I am. I took him to the end of John's gospel, John, verse 8, or John 18, where they're coming to arrest Jesus. And the people are asking who he is, the guards, and he just says, I am he, and they fall flat on their faces. Jesus is straight up declaring that he is God all throughout John's gospel. There's no question for those who heard him what he was doing. In fact, that's why even in our passage today, we see people grumbling, we see people getting ticked off, we see people leaving, saying things like, isn't this Jesus, or isn't this Jesus Joseph's son and Mary's son who we know? How can he declare that he came down from heaven? How can he be declaring that he is divine? The I am statements are incredibly important because they're Jesus' declaration that he's God, but there's also a second reason why I think they they are super important for us today. The second reason is they're not just statements of Jesus' divinity, they're also descriptors of who he is and what he came to do. When I say, I'm bald, right? We brought that one up earlier. That's not a big surprise to you guys. It's not a big revelation, maybe to those on the podcast. Sorry, guys. Sorry to disappoint. But what I am is I'm telling you a little something about myself, right? Let's take it a step further. I'm someone who loves DIY projects. I love fixing up my old house. I'm a dad of two daughters. I'm the son of an alcoholic parent. I'm a fan of the Oklahoma Sooners, the greatest college football program of all time. Stop. <laughs> this is the greatest moment of my life here. We, I've got a fan here with me. David, was that you back there? I see you. <laughs> Yes. I am also someone who is an approval person. I, I care too much what people think, which maybe I was a little scared to even declare that with the Oklahoma Sooners in Wolverine and Sparty territory, but not anymore, thanks to you. I'm a procrastinator. As much as I try to change it, I always end up waiting till the last minute. It kills me. I'm someone who's very aware of his shortcomings. I have no illusions that I'm the world's greatest husband, father, pastor, son, friend. That's why the gospel is such good news to me. I get Jesus' perfect record. I don't have to be perfect. These are just a few things, but do you guys see my point? As I tell you these I am things about me, you're learning a little bit more about who I am. And Jesus just ratchets it up. He goes 12 steps deeper with each one of these things that he's telling us. He says, he's the bread of life. He's the true sustenance that we're all longing for. He says he's the light of the world. 
He's how we see in a dark place. He's the door, he's the gate, he's how we get in. He's the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for us. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the vine. Each one of these is revealing something about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And if we claim to be his disciples, we need to know who our rabbi is. We need to know who it is that we're trying to be like. It's all the time that I have, though, to set up the I am statements. Let me just say one last thing. You guys got a bookmark. Looks like this. Follow along at home. If I could urge you just one thing today, follow along. Coming to church on Sunday morning, hearing a sermon, but not digging in on your own in the word throughout the week is like going to a movie theater, watching the trailers and saying, that was really great, and then going home. The main course It's right here, it's in your hands, it's on your smartphones, it is readily available, dig into it, follow along with us, please, please, please. All right, let's look at our passage today. Turn with me to John chapter six, John chapter six. Today we look at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. What does that even mean? And what if I'm gluten free? Let that sink in. That's a valid question these days. I don't know where to go from that, so let's just pray. (laughs) God, this passage is a familiar passage to many of us. Lord, but I just pray whether we've heard this a hundred times or whether today is the first time, Lord, that you would just open our eyes to who you are. Open our eyes to what it means that you are the bread of life. Open our eyes to what you've come to do and what you're still doing today in this very room and in our hearts if we just let you. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are um, open, eyes that are quick to see, ears that are quick to hear, Lord. Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you guys are willing and able, we like to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. We're in John chapter six, starting in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? A bit of context here. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and then he's walked on water to the other side of the lake, and now they've found him over there. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, dropping a little hint at what they really want. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread always. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. 
All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say now, I came down from heaven? But Jesus just doubles down, skip down to verse 48. He says it again, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You can grab a seat. In order to help us kind of track with the passage here, I want to package it in kind of three easily digestible bites, which is a pun, but you don't know it yet. It's a pun because we're going to look at the real bread, the false bread, and finally the ultimate bread. The real bread, the false bread, and finally the ultimate bread. Okay, so let's dive into the real bread here to start us off. I was going to call this section a backstory of bread because that is an attention-grabbing sermon title, right? Everyone sits up, attention-riveted, elbowing, I'm not sleeping tonight, honey, We're doing a backstory on bread. We could be talking about the miracles, but no way. Grab my notebook. We're talking about bread. But maybe we should be excited. I promise this will be relevant. The truth is we often just kind of parachute into a passage. We don't always know the context that's there. In fact, we did it this week. Last week we were in the Minor Prophets. This week we are smack dab in the middle of John. It's like landing in a foreign city without a map. So we're going to do a little backstory on two things, two important backdrops. One, what, would, what was bread in the Old Testament? What would be coming up in the Israelites' mind as they're listening to this? And the second thing, just what's going on in John here, the feeding of the 5,000? What's happening there? Let's, let's look at each of these to try to get our bearings. Let's first look, what was bread to the Israelites? What do you think this idea of bread would conjure up in the minds of Jesus' hearers? I think... One easy answer is food, absolutely. Bread to the Israelites was food, but very differently than bread is food to us now. Now you go to a restaurant and you order your main dish and they bring out some bread to kind of keep you entertained while they cook the food. For the Israelites, bread was the staple. You might supplement with some fruit, you might supplement with some veggies or a little meat when it's available, but bread is the main course, the main staple. But I think it's even more than that. I think bread would take them all the way back to the garden, to the first few chapters of the Bible. In fact, there's some midrash, some Jewish rabbinical teaching, the type of teaching that was being done all around Jesus during this time. This is some of the teaching about bread. It says this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the tree that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat from, right? the one that ultimately caused the fall. They ate from this tree and sin entered the world. This is what some rabbis were teaching. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Adam ate of wasn't a tree at all. It was wheat. 
Those with gluten allergies should be gloating right now. I picked on you earlier, but not now. Centuries, millennia later, the holiest among us, your bodies just instinctively know, don't eat that. <laughs> now, do I really think the tree was wheat? I, personally, I don't. There's a lot of different theories surrounding it, but it pairs nicely with a couple verses later in Genesis. There's something to it. Genesis 3, verse 19. If you guys want to look at it, Genesis 3, 19 says this. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. By the sweat of your brow. Now, this passage actually doesn't say exactly that. We translate it that way because bread is food. But this reads, by the sweat of your brow, by the toil and through hard work now. This is the consequence of the fall. This is the curse. And now through hard work, through the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat your bread. Bread for the Jew means survival. And now it means hard work to gain it. It's no wonder in our passage today when Jesus starts talking about breads, the crowd immediately just says, verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the work that God requires for this bread? They instinctively know that bread means sustenance, it means life, but it also means hard work to get it. Fast forward a little bit. Out of Genesis, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, where do we see bread there? This is a softball question. If you want to get one right in church, right here is a good opportunity. Where do we see bread in the Exodus account? The manna. Thank you. I was all ready with it. It starts with M. It rhymes with banana. I didn't need it. A little bit more about this. A little bit more of the rabbinical teachings of what was going on with manna. It says this, it was bread without work. The gathering of manna caused little trouble. And those among the people who were too lazy to perform even the slightest work went out while the manna fell so that it fell straight into their hands and their mouth. It's like catching snowflakes, right? This suddenly was God miraculously providing bread without work. It was a reversal of the curse. Let me give you one more rabbinical teaching of that time. And the reason I'm giving you these are, this is what was going on in Jesus' time. This was the teaching of the day that would be right there in the forefront of their minds as they hear Jesus coming in claiming that he's the bread. Manna was bread from heaven. It's rumored that there was no need of cooking it or baking it, nor did it require any other kind of preparation, and it still contained the flavor of every conceivable dish. One had only to desire a certain dish, and no sooner had they thought of it than the manna had the flavor of the dish desired. The same food had a different taste to everyone who partook of it according to their age. To the little children, it tasted like milk. To the strong youths, like bread. To the old men, like honey. To the sick, like barley steeped in oil and honey. Now you have bread that you don't even have to cook. Baked into it, it's got every flavor already in it. This is a complete reversal of the curse of Genesis 3. What did manna mean to the Israelites? It meant their very survival. They wouldn't have lasted but a few days without it in the wilderness. It was God's way of saying, I'll take care of you. I see you. I know your needs. Find in me your sustenance. I will provide it. It was a gift, no work required. It was a reversal of the curse, a gift of faith, 
where they just had to wait on it, to not overcollect it, to not try to control it, to not try to manipulate it themselves, but to just trust that God would provide every morning. And that's just it. It was provision for the Israelites. It was life. Without getting too ahead of ourselves, though, I wonder where do we look for these things today? We're a society that has access to pretty much everything. Where do we still need to have faith? To know that without him, we're doomed. To trust him to provide. To trust him to be faithful. If we can't think of anything, maybe we're too comfortable. Maybe we're too self-reliant. Maybe we need to open our eyes to the myriad of things that are outside of our control and realize, but for the grace of God, we'd be doomed too. We are still every bit as reliant on God today as the Israelites were. We just like to act like we aren't. It's a bit of the backstory on bread. In the Old Testament, it was real food for the Israelites, real food that meant life or death. But we also have a bit of backstory in our passage too. We have Jesus doing a miracle right before the section we read. Jesus feeds the 5,000. I won't go into a ton of detail. It is a familiar passage. There's 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children all listening to Jesus teach and they're hungry. And there's no food, no bread really around. All they have is five loaves and two fish and Jesus prays and he breaks the loaves and he passes them out and everyone eats until they're full. Everyone eats and there's still 12 basketfuls left over. I don't have a ton of time to spend here, but let me give you one fun factoid about miracles in general. And then let me give you something about this miracle in particular. One little fun factoid is that every miracle that Jesus does, every miracle, is in some form or fashion alleviating suffering. We say it again, every one of the miracles is coming against the suffering of this world. He feeds the hungry, he heals the sick, he opens the eyes of the blind, he resurrects the dead, he calms the storm and the disciples' fears. These aren't magic tricks just to show off how strong Jesus is and how powerful he is. They're meant to communicate, to show us what the kingdom is all about, to show us who Jesus is. Do we always see it that way? Is this how we view the kingdom even? Or is it all about our personal comforts? In today's case, this miracle is showing that Jesus is the greater Moses who provides the true bread that reverses the curse. John 6 is all about Moses. In fact, there's probably 20 parallels to Moses in the start of John chapter 6. Let me look at a couple. Look at verse 1 with me. John 6, verse 1, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the sea, and a great crowd of people followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs he had performed. Does that ring some bells of maybe a Red Sea that's parted, a group of people that cross from one side of the sea to the other because they've just seen these signs and wonders, these plagues? Then Jesus went up on a mountain, just like Moses always does. And then it says in verse four, the Jewish festival of the Passover was near. This is the festival commemorating the Exodus account. Is this ringing some bells? I've got a few more. Bear with me. I nerd out on this stuff. I love how God just writes through human history, 
how God just weaves human history and communicates through even these little details. Verse five, the people are hungry without bread, just like the Exodus account. It's done, verse six, to test the people. Verse nine, five small loaves, two small fish. Boy, those seem, are those arbitrary numbers? Five books of Torah, two books of the law. This is taking us right back to the Exodus. Later, they eat the bread as much as they want. Let none of it be wasted. How many basketfuls left over? 12. How many tribes of Israel? 12. People see the signs and assume that Jesus is the prophet, the greater Moses, verse 14. Jesus withdraws to a mountainside by himself, verse 15. This is just like Sinai. I'll stop there, but we could continue on. They're parallel after parallel after parallel, and God is telling us something. Jesus provides an amazing meal for everyone, sure, but it's telling us that he's the new and better Moses. As great a leader as Moses was, the people knew that he was pointing towards an even greater one. Deuteronomy 18 talked about how there was going to become the prophet, the greater Moses. And look at verse 14. The people saw the signs that Jesus performed, the feeding of the 5,000. They began to say, surely this is the prophet capitalized in your Bible because it's going back to this new Moses figure. He was the king who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. The people read the sign correctly. Jesus is the new and greater Moses, but they miss the type of king Jesus is coming to be. The problem isn't the bread. The problem is the people's response to it. They miss it. Let's see what they miss. Let's look at the false bread. The false bread. Look at verse 25. Go back to our section today. Verse 25 says this, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. It's all about your stomach and your desires. Don't work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The people are looking for the wrong thing. The people get confused and they think it's about the bread and not the baker. Verse 26, Jesus again answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He's saying you're being controlled by your desires and your appetites. But isn't this all of us? We're all running around kind of just saying, sir, give me this bread. At least it's me. So often I'm just like, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need you. Well, maybe not you, but that bread that you can cook up. Jesus, I'm hungry. Not really for you. Maybe that other thing that you could give to me. If I'm really honest, sometimes it's not even Jesus at all that I'm going to. It's just, I'm feeling low today. Netflix, come revive my spirits or at least help me get through tonight. I'm feeling ashamed or disappointed. Let me just kind of throw myself into work and try to get a few pats on the back. This is all of our struggles. Our focus gets on this bread that spoils. Feel like I'm not enough. Let me run to the bar and find someone who will tell me otherwise. I feel incomplete. Let me try to find wholeness on the shelf of the store. What can I buy that's going to make me feel a little better? Let me ask you, where do you run when you feel afraid? Where do you run when you feel insecure and just self-conscious? 
Where do you go to when you feel like you've let somebody down? To that, Jesus just says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Did you catch that word in there again? Do not work for food that spoils. We're right back to the realities of the curse, the curse that we're gonna see Jesus came to undo. I spent the last three straight weekends at the hospital. You wanna talk about a front row seat to the realities that everything in this life is gonna spoil at one time or another. That body that you're working so hard for, it has a shelf life. That bank account that you're working so hard to pad, there comes a point when money is useless and can't do anything for you. Crossroads, what are we working for? Food that spoils or food that endures? Even the manna in the wilderness spoiled, there's only one food that truly endures. Let's look at that now, the ultimate bread. The ultimate bread, or the bread that endures, you could say. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. What is this food? Skip down to verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. No more illusions anymore, just straight out. He just says it, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus just says it again. Look down a little further at verse 48. I am the bread of life. He's the ultimate bread. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus isn't just the baker. He's also the bread itself. How does this change your perception or your relationship with him? Let me tell you. If he's only the baker, it's still pretty much exclusively about us our wants, our desires, our appetites. There's a story that I love to tell in gospel transformation groups. Some of you guys may have heard it. Charles Spurgeon gives a sermon example that's just stuck with me. And he tells this story about this great king and one day this poor farmer comes in and he's got this giant carrot in his hands. And he comes before the king and he just says, oh king, oh king, you are such a good king the best king that I've ever seen in my lifetime. And he said, I've been growing carrots for my whole life. And for 40 plus years, I have never seen a carrot like this one. And he says, King, I want you to have this carrot just as a token of my gratitude and appreciation and love for you. And the king is just moved by this humble gesture. And he says, I want you to take the royal farmlands and grow more carrots for the kingdom. And this guy, this nobleman, overhears it and he thinks to himself, boy, if this guy got all that for a carrot, imagine what I can get for a horse. And so the next day he shows up in court and he parades this beautiful horse in and he says, oh king, oh king, you are an amazing king, the best king that I've ever experienced. And I raise horses. And this is the greatest horse that I've ever raised. And I want you to have it. And the king looked at him and he said, thank you and took the horse and began to walk away. And the man was kind of stunned, and the king looked back at him, and he said, you're wondering why I didn't give you anything. And the man's kind of 
face and demeanor fell down and he said, the first man gave me a carrot, but you have given yourself a horse. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that sometimes for us, it's all, for one man, I should say, it's all about the king and how he can bless and give something to the king. And for the other man, it's all about himself, his own appetites, the bread that he wants and how he can manipulate trying to get some of that. This is what's happening in this passage, all over it, when Jesus says, you're not coming for me, but you're coming because you ate your fill of the loaves. You want more bread for your stomachs. You don't want me. When my dad was dying on his deathbed, um, he was dying from cirrhosis of the liver from the alcohol, hepatitis C from the needle drugs, and with that, the ammonia level in your blood begins to rise and you begin to become very delusional. And so he would call me, pretty regularly towards the end with these outlandish stories. Like, I joined the military, Bran. Like, I know that I'm not strong enough, so I'm gonna start out as a cook, but then I'm, I'm going into infantry. Or um, I got accepted into University of Michigan. I'd show up to get him and be like, we're going to Coney Island. And I'd be like, no, we're not. But he called me in the middle of all these delusions and he had a, an interesting conversation with me. And he says, Bran, I was praying last night. And I just like kind of stopped and I was like, you don't pray, so please tell me more. And uh, he said, I was praying. I just felt like God just grabbed my hand while I was praying. And I began to really listen to what he was saying. And he said, I've done a lot of bad stuff in my life, Bran. And I said, yes, you have. He said, but Jesus forgives me of it all. I said, Dad, do you realize what you just said? And he said, yeah, I, I've prayed my entire life. Jesus, give me this. Give me that. Jesus, I need this. Will you do this for me? Help me out with this. And he said, now I'm just praying, will you just be with me? He said, it's changed everything. I don't care about anything else. I just want to be with him. Do you see the difference there? If we don't see a difference between praying for stuff and asking for the presence of God, we might be just settling for bread without the baker. Like the crowds, we might be more interested in the false bread than the ultimate bread. Because Jesus alone is our ultimate bread. He accomplished everything that the, that the manna did for the Israelites. This is why we spent so long talking about the backstory of bread today. Remember with me what manna meant for the Israelites. It was for their very survival. Knowing that they were going to perish without it. It was God's way of saying, I'll take care of you. Find in me your sustenance. It was what gave them energy for the day ahead. It was a gift, no work required. A reversal of the curse, if you will. It was a bread of faith where they just had to wait on it and not try to make it all about them and how they could control it. But this manna still couldn't be enough. Jesus points it out. It was real bread, but those who ate of it still perished. It wasn't meant to be the ultimate. It was meant to point to the ultimate bread that God would send. He's the one who gives us not physical survival, but eternal spiritual life. He's God's provision, his free gift of faith. He's the bread without work. Scripture says it this way, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That is a way of just saying, Jesus did all the work. He was perfect. He did all the work and now we get his righteousness and he takes our sin. There was work that needed to be done. He just did it for us. Jesus is the bread of life. 
But how does that bread give us life? Jesus says it later in John's gospel. He says it this way. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. Even today, everything that we eat, everything that we eat comes from something that's died. Dead wheat is what gives us bread, right? You order your salad, it's a bowl full of dead plants. They don't say that on the menu, but it's true. I'm not trying to be morbid, but what I'm trying to say here is I think God has designed it this way. In order for us to live, we see it every day, multiple times a day when we eat. In order for anyone to live, it's only done by the death of another. The only exception to this is a couple of minerals, namely salt. Everything else has to give its life in order for us to live. Jesus is no different. He's gonna lay down his life and become the ultimate bread of life. That's why in this passage says we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. The choice we now have is, what are we gonna eat? Do we keep putting all our energy into bread that spoils? Or do we trust that he alone is the bread that endures? Do we keep living under the curse, slaving away every day for bread that can't last? Or do we, in faith, want to accept the bread that Christ has worked for so that we don't have to? This bread, that's his very flesh and blood, that we can eat it and live. The answer to that question will forever shape us. The people in this passage get what a huge deal it is. That's why they grumble. That's why even many of his disciples leave after this, saying it's a hard teaching. Look at how it all ends, and then we'll be done. Verse 66. From this time on, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What about us, Crossroads? What are we gonna do with Jesus' claims? What if it's really as simple as Peter's response? As this isn't the most earth-shattering sermon, most of us have heard this passage uh, before, seen it preached, but if we let it seep down from our head to our hearts, it changes everything. Peter gets it when he says, Lord, we've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One. He doesn't have any other options left because he's come to believe this with his whole heart. In fact, belief is mentioned nine times in this passage. It's repeated over and over, going all the way back to the beginning when Jesus said, you wanna know the work that God requires? The only work is this, believe in the one that God has sent. I don't think Jesus is talking just about the kind of belief that's like a one-time prayer. I think he's talking about the kind of belief that gets in your bones and it changes how you live. If you really believe something, it changes everything. I remember when I became a Christian, I was a young high school guy and I remember being invited to a bunch of things with these old friends that wanted me to go back to my old way of life right after I'd become a Christian. And I remember just warring back and forth. I'm an approval person. I didn't want to let them down. And then I remember just realizing, like, are you kidding me? I just met the God of this universe. My eyes have been opened. I can't go back. I was just some dumb high school kid 
but I still got it. It's not rocket science. When you believe in something and you believe it with your bones, it changes who you are and it changes how you live. It changes your priorities. Listen to Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? We can't go back. We don't have any other options anymore. We believe that you're the bread of life and it's changed us completely. So Crossroads, let me just leave us with one question. What does it look like for us to have the kind of belief in Christ that trickles? No, skip trickles. That invades our life and our heart. That changes how we see the world and how we make decisions. That changes how we look at our time, our energy, our talents. That changes how we view those who are suffering around us. How we plan for the future. How we forgive those who've wronged us. How we treat our wives. How we treat our kids. How we treat our roommates. Or that kid that really annoys us in class. Stop working for the bread that spoils. Stop putting so much effort into the temporary things that can't last. Have faith in the ultimate bread who says that if we just eat of him, we'll have something lasting. Let's pray. Lord, we do believe. Help us with the areas of unbelief. Lord, help us to taste, to touch, to hear, to see, to feel the boundlessness of your grace. That you would stoop to become like a stalk of wheat and fall to the ground that we may live. (laughs) Truly, there is no one like you. Amen.